Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus. Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow! Did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas, big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com/acast and use code acast for twenty percent off your first purchase. Welcome to Podcast Like It's 1992, the podcast where we talk about the films of 1992 here from our perch in 2023. I am one of your hosts, Phil Liscove. And I am your special guest host, Emily St. James. I am sitting in this week for your regular host, a sweaty middle-aged man who thinks he can deliver the Alec Baldwin always be closing monologue with perfection, but he always gets like three words wrong and it drives me nuts. (laughs) It's great. It's perfect. Uh, With us today... Uh, is Tom Meissen. What what else needs to be said about Tom Meissen other than that he's great and uh, he loves people giving him compliments. But, um, <laughs> so Tom. I don't. I'm too British. I know. You're too- <laughs> so when I reach out to the Midwest, you, I hate it too. Is that bit Tom Meissen back again? He just likes talking to people. I uh, So I reached out to you. You were one of the first people I reached out to when I decided that we were going to do 92. And I sent you the list of movies and your response was, I want to do them all. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so mm-hmm. um, we are uh, going to work through a long list of movies that Tom wants to uh, talk about. And it's going to be great. But at the top of your list or one of the first picks was Glengarry Glen Ross. Yeah. Um, you are um, a theater actor. Uh, you were just in a play. Um, and this is a famous play, a a Pulitzer Prize winning play. Um, and and there are a lot of things I learned about this that I didn't know as I was doing research on it. One of them being, uh, the significant changes between the play and the film. Mm -hmm. Um, I've never read or seen the play. Has anyone here read or seen the play by any chance? Yeah, both. Okay. You saw it or read it? It's a regular over here. Back in, I think it was the early eighties was when it premiered yes. and it yeah. premiered in London. That was its world premiere. Mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's just constantly on over here. It was a <laughs> really with slight disgust. Disgust because I haven't been cast in any of them. No. <laughs> uh, I hate everything without me in it. Um, and and like it's always it's always a treat. I've I've only seen it twice, but read it. Do you remember but who did you see it with? Out of curiosity, who was in it? Do you um, remember or no? There wasn't really anyone that I think. Okay, of note. Okay. Um, but what's interesting is. I read how many productions now add yeah. the Alec Baldwin character because he wasn't in the original and then he was added for the film. And now stage productions are like, we can't have Glengarry without always be closing. So they well, chunk it's, in. 100%. It's interesting because so the, the, the three things that were added primarily to the motion picture as opposed to the play was, as you mentioned, the Alec Baldwin monologue, uh, the sit with the guy when he when when uh, Shelley goes to the guy's house and has that sit in his house, yeah. and then I believe some portions of the daughter uh, having his daughter in the hospital. Um, yeah. You you hear of her, but you don't actually necessarily have the phone calls. If I'm not mistaken, all this is to say that Mamet added those things to give context and more clarity to sort of what is going on. And there's a part of me that's like, I don't even know how this works without those things. <laughs> I mean, g- genuinely, like, I'm sure it did, but. I mean, it, it won a Pulitzer, so it must have worked <laughs> on some level. Yeah, who the fuck am I? But, <laughs> but you know what I'm sort of getting at, Emily, that like, there's something about, forget about the sort of the iconography of the Alec Baldwin scene. It really, it propels you through the whole fucking thing. It gives you the whole, like the stakes of the whole thing. I think you take a lot more on faith on stage. I think that you as a viewer, like sit in the audience and think, uh, you know, if somebody, I don't know how this opens without the Alec Baldwin thing, because I've never read it. But like, if someone in the play says, well, I'm going to get fired if I don't do this. I think you take that on faith more than you do on film because film like literalizes things i think a lot about the 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 movie doubt which this seems like a tangent but it's not i've seen that on stage and i've seen it um in the film and in film they haven't done a lot to open it up and that just makes you be like well did he do it or didn't he and like that's the point of it but at the same time, you're sort of like film makes you want literal answers to things. It is much harder to pursue ambiguity in film. Obviously, you can and should, and it's great. But like the stage is inherently ambiguous in a way that I think you could do this without the Baldwin monologue, except now if you tried to do it at like some bumfuck community theater and you didn't have it in there, people would be like, well, you missed the best part. So <laughs> it, it does. I mean, it is interesting because I feel like and, and this is something to talk about, you know, obviously, as we go through this, but there are only so many plays that have been adapted to the screen um, successfully. There's, there's a lot of them that are done where it's just sort of like they, it it feels very staid. It feels very staged. Um, It it doesn't feel particularly dynamic. Um, That happens from time to time for beloved plays that people just really want to, I guess, see as a movie with, you know, quote unquote movie star actors. This is one of, I would argue, the only ones that feels like it transcends the medium with which it actually originally was in. I never saw it on the stage, so I can't speak to that, but I do feel like this isn't the most sort of dynamic looking movie, really. I mean, it's, it's well filmed, but it just goes to show that like, obviously you've got this unbelievable cast of actors, you've got this crackling script and it just goes to show that you really can film a great, fucking play with great people and it ultimately doesn't matter how 
cinematic it feels. I mean, listen, we do get outside from time to time, but and I wondered because um, it's interesting, but that all of the cast in this movie star cast yes. all come from theatre backgrounds. They all have a huge theatre resume, and it makes you wonder if it's down to their interpretation of Mamet's dialogue, mm-hmm. that whether it calls for the theatrical sort, for lack of a better term, mm-hmm. that you can't bluff your way through it or you can't um, uh, downplay your way through it. You have to give it a bit of show and a bit of oomph. Mm-hmm. And, but that also slightly goes against everything that Mamet says about how to play his writing, which is don't do anything to say my fucking words because I'm God. <laughs> but actually yeah. you need, you, you need, you can have, you know, um, uh, um, completely, completely 100% natural performances. Sure. Yeah, it we- needs to be Mamet, you know, the performances need to be as Mamet-esque as the writing is. So fuck you, David. Well, this is this is actually a question I, I had. One of the reasons that I wanted to have you on for this episode is you have, as I mentioned, you've been in theater, you've been in film. And, and a lot of people talk about how, or at least I've heard actors talk about how when you're on the stage, you're constantly, I don't want to say constantly, but you're acknowledging the audience, right? There is an acknowledgement that the audience is there to some degree or another. And in film, it's all about ignoring the camera and ignoring the audience. Yeah, and someone th- said that, 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 and I quite like this, that, with on stage you're you have an audience of what 700 yeah uh and on screen you have an audience of one which is the camera yeah and but i still think you can play in the same way that's my question right like I think what's so successful about this cast is that they're threading that needle of both of those things in a way. Like it almost feels as though they're finding that modulation of being able to do both those things. You get the sense that they just love the fact that most of the film is all of them in one room and they'll stick a camera on them yeah. and let them yeah. play around. Yeah. That's well, why it's... I think of an amazing cast like that it's some of their best work. Oh, without a doubt. From all of them, from every single one of them. It's the only time I've ever read that the cast, when they weren't in a scene, would show up to watch the other actors perform. Like, they were just like, I just want to see the the, the shit go down, which is just amazing. I mean... And I mean, you would. If you read that script and you're like, oh, tomorrow it's, it's Kevin and Al and um, Jonathan Price, and it's going to be when when Williamson fucks up. You're going to want to go and watch that. And then in comes Jack Lemon with the, when he accidentally puts his foot in it and kills himself. Oh, God. Of course you're good. If you're, it doesn't matter if you're Ed Harris or Alan Arkin, you're going to want to come and see it. Absolutely. I mean, it, it's... It, it is interesting how <clears throat> this film was embraced but maybe not as embraced as i thought it would at the time i mean i'm sure emily you sort of did a little bit of contemporaneous looking at sort of how this movie was um received and it was received well by critics as you would imagine it would be but it does feel like with this cast i mean it still blows my mind that jack lemon didn't get a nomination like jack it didn't, lemon it didn't make back its budget it was a box office flop and i think it that was. really hurt it like really is that yeah. right 
Yeah. Which became again, I, a thing on home video, obviously. Totally. So it yeah. became this, I don't want to, I hate the term cult classic because I feel like it doesn't mean anything anymore, but I do think that we do live in that, you know, in the nineties, you could have a film tank at the box office and, and legitimately find a, a, you know, an audience for it on video. Um, and it's not to say that it doesn't exist today. I mean, streaming and this, that, whatever, but it does feel like we're in this weird sort of purgatory, but I do want to give a little bit of context. Uh, when an office full of New York City real estate salesmen is given the news that all but the top two will be fired at the end of the week, the atmosphere begins to heat up. Shelley Levine, played by Jack Lemon, who has a sick daughter, does everything in his power to get better leads from his boss, John Williamson, played by Kevin Spacey, but to no avail. When his coworker Dave Moss, played by Ed Harris, comes up with a plan to steal the leads, things get complicated for the tough-talking salesman. Glen Gary Glenn Ross opened on September 20th, 1992 against the last of the Mohicans, Mr. Baseball, Hero, Sneakers, and of course, the Mighty Ducks. It would go on to make it would go on to make $10.7 million on a $12 million budget. It's got 95% on Rotten Tomatoes from critics, 88 from audiences. Roger Ebert gave the film three and a half stars, saying the shabby real estate office in Glengarry Glen Ross seems likely to become one of the movie places we will remember, like the war room in Dr. Strangelove or Hannibal Lecter's cell. It is divided into two parts, a glassed-in area where the office manager lives, along with the precious leads, cards with the names of people who might want to buy real estate, and the rest of the office, given over to the desks of the salesmen who try to sound rich and confident over the phone, but whose eyes are haunted with despair. Produced on stage in the good times of the 1980s, filmed in the hard times of the 1990s. Oh, my. Uh, it, <laughs> I mean, different times. <laughs> this is Roger Ebert. Uh, I mean, I, listen, if, if the hard times were the 90s, what the fuck are we living in now? I <laughs> this mean, was, I don't this know. was released in a recession. Like this was released in, in the depths of a recession. That's that, the recession that sort of ended 12 years of Republican uh, Republicans right. in the presidency and propelled Bill Clinton. You know, like we like this movie is released right in the heart of that that time period. So, yeah, I'm guessing he just and means economically. But yeah. like, listen, yeah. listen, he had no idea what was to come. He had no idea what's to come. Uh, it shows the new kind of American salesmanship, which is organized around offices and corporations. Having said that, I must not forget to mention the humor in the film. Emma's dialogue has a kind of logic, a cadence that allows people to arrive in triumph at the end of sentences we could not possibly have imagined. There's an energy in that. You can see the joy with which these actors get to sink their teeth into these great lines after living through movies in which flat dialogue serves only to advance the stories. Meanwhile, nobody is buying any real estate and it's raining and the L thunders by like a mystery turn to hell. Yeah, I mean, sure, sure, all of that. Uh, I mean, I, I, you know, I watching this film, first of all, I was kind of amazed by um I mean, I was amazed by everybody in it. I don't think there's a bad performance. And I, I do just want to kind of above board. There are two people associated with this film that are not great people kevin spacey and david mamet are people that i'm you know i don't want to sit here and start you know saying that uh, or, or pretend as though they're not bad humans uh they've made some bad choices um we still but just saying that that fuck pigs the pair of them correct and, now, and there's some shit now. that yeah and then we can talk about their work 30 yeah years. i i i want to say that um there was Listen, this movie is is sorry, this this script is um, mean spirited and filled with bile and anger and and frustration and, uh, you know, um, toxic masculinity and all sorts of things like that. Um, But then there's also moments in it that are just like straight up gross and not okay. There's a speech that Roma gives about like, if you want to fuck little girls, go for it. I'm just like. No, 
Well, that, well, that specific, before yeah. we go on to your yes, wider please, point, please. Yeah. that specific bit, yes. the, the, the brilliance of it mm-hmm. is he starts talking shit to uh, Shelley, to Jack Lemmon's character, yep. about how uh, you shouldn't drink alcohol when it's hot because it dehydrates you. Yeah. And then Robert, uh, Jonathan Price's character, James Link, mm-hmm. suddenly says, huh, who says that? And immediately they know Ricky Roma's in for the kill. He's going to get it. And the brilliance, the tiny little brilliance, as soon as he says, who says that, mm. you look at Jack Lemon, he has a little look up at him, downs his drink, gets his paper it's together, and leaves giving Ricky Roma a little pat on the shoulder. Yeah. Uh, but it's all just really, really subtle as Ricky Roma is still going up. And then he goes into, when you see him later, Yes. The part that starts, all train compartments smell vaguely of shit. It gets so you yep. don't mind. That's the worst I can confess. And then it goes through, you fuck little girls, you cheated on your wife, so be it. You get struck with the middle class morality, all of that stuff. He's just going through like his Rolodex of shit aphorisms mm-hmm. to see if anything sticks. Yes. yes. Because if you, read it, if you read it on the page, it's absolute not. It's like reading a trump rally speech it makes absolutely no sense and it's going off on tangents and when you hear it spoken out loud it's you kind of get away with some of it but it's such shit and it's such a well rehearsed shit from him just trying to hook the guy in and nothing works what's interesting is that it made me think of the first scene that Tyler Durden has with Edward Norton in Fight Club as well, in the sense of this litany of things that, I mean, first of all, those aren't two people as anyone spoiler who fucking hasn't seen Fight Club, but like there is something. About... <laughs> sorry. <laughs> sorry. Emily. Um, <laughs> but I think that it's, it's to your point, um, Tom, that, Tyler is saying all these things to this character to sort of, you know, inundate him with trying to hook him into the sort of empowerment thing. What's the thing that I can latch onto that's going to make this guy feel powerful and in control of his own destiny. So you're not wrong that like he's yeah. Brilliant. It's brilliant writing. Both, both of those, both of those films. Yes. Brilliant writing. The, the the morality thing is interesting too because it's it's it, he is a moving target and he's trying to figure out what link is going to latch onto, and the thing that he seems to kind of lock onto is this bit that Roma has about um, the great sex he's had and that you probably don't remember the orgasms but you'll remember the way that this look or this touch or this whatever it's it's pretty. Yes, yeah, amazing. And then the other thing that made me think of, not to keep harping on the Fight Club thing, but when Roma says you don't buy anything, you rent it. We don't. Nothing can come with us after we die, right? So we're we're just renting everything for as long as we're on this uh, on this mortal coil. And I, and I think that there's something in that in Fight Club as well, obviously. But. This is it's interesting comparing it to Fight Club. Because this is where watching it again this week for the first time in years, and even though I haven't watched it in years, it has for a long time been in my top 10 favorite films. I absolutely love it. Watching it now, having now that I'm 40, and now that we know what David Mamet 
is, or at least what he's become, which is, I don't know, probably what he always was. Yeah. Uh, although he did have a conversion, didn't he? He said, I've converted. I, I feel like the Mamet arc is he was like, he did putatively have politics that weren't total shit. But he also was always writing these characters. Like, I think there was a thing in his id that, you know, then he sort of became, that became unleashed over time. This is my, this is my point, is that before, it's very easy to say this is absolutely brilliant, scalpel-sharp satire mm-hmm. of capitalist America in the 80s and then in the 90s and it's perfect and he's not one of them and we can see that you just chuckle these men in one room and they're going to tear each other apart mm-hmm. but thinking about him now and this is the first time I've watched it since he came out as being a shit now you think is he actually it's some kind of Ayn Randian style survival of the fittest and yeah all of these guys are in a room but fuck the guys who can't keep up who top of the board you really are the champ because there's there's some lines that are suggesting the former that he pities these people and we should all pity them and other lines that are just the glory there's even a a whole sequence about america we don't make things anymore what we're not a we're not a country we're not a world of men anymore Mm -hmm. from ricky roma and now you just don't know which side Mamet was intending. And in, well, in some ways, that's the brilliance of his writing. Yes. I do think, though, that there does seem to be a stereotype or an archetype of a Mamet male character. There aren't a ton of female characters in his movies uh, or in his plays. And I do feel like they're all kind of these... Um, I mean, honestly, kind of whiny little bitches <laughs> that are just like complaining about a time of of the pa- in the past. This kind of when yeah, men no, were men, you know. Marriage was all that's an all female cast. I saw that not that long ago, <laughs> and that was um that was another one that although it was an all female cast, it it didn't really seem there wasn't very much femininity to it. No, I mean, and listen, I, I think that, uh, you know, House of um, House of Games, the yeah. film that he made with his with his wife at the time, uh, Lindsay Krause, if I'm not mistaken, or something mm-hmm. like, um, is great. She's great in it. It's not that he's incapable of writing female characters. It just seems as though, um, you know, I guess write what you know. And it does seem as though a lot of these male characters have you know an axe to grind and my guess is that david mammon has had an axe to grind for quite some time i think if you were going to write this <laughs> if you were going to start from scratch and do glengarry glenn ross with an all-female cast like the ways the stereotypical ways obviously no person is one thing no gender is one thing but the stereotypical ways that women backbite and fight each other and compete are so different you'd kind of end like you could end up in the exact same place but the process to get there yeah. would be so different and i think that's I don't know. I think there's something in Mammoth that um, uh, for, for me kind of broke around the play Oleana, which is sort of like this idea 
that deep down all men are just like Manichian assholes who like want to consume as much as possible. And we need to acknowledge that truth. And that runs through a lot of nineties films. Like it's in fight club. It's in American beauty. It's in um, a number of movies we're going to be covering here. This sort of this idea that men are just amoral monsters. And like, maybe if they fall in love with the right woman, we can hold them back for a little while. But I think it's a, I don't know. It's a limited view of the world. I think, Mamet is often a brilliant writer. Um, and I think all the things Tom points to are like very smart in this script. Um, but yeah, I think that eventually he was just sort of revealed as like a guy who really firmly believes that. And I'm like, I don't think that's true, Dave. Well, Oleana is a really good other example that there are ways of doing the play. Uh, so it's about the, the, a student, a female student accusing a male professor of um, uh, sexual harassment, sexual assault. And it mostly and probably quite rightly the she is the one who comes out on top she is the one in uh, in control but then now it it can be read in the other way it can be read as poor him him. but now now that mamet came out and said all all men who want to be teachers are pedophiles (laughs) it kind of now that changes your whole opinion of Oleana as well. Was that think, him talking about how yeah, yeah all teachers want to want to have sex with their students? I think no there's a I think there's a way you can do that play and have it be like, oh yes, this is like this is a way that women experience the world that men are unaware of. And I think there's a way you can do that play that is like, fuck, all women just want to get one over men. And I think I think you're right. Now that he's come out as a total shitbag, you're like you could only kind of see that second reading. <laughs> I I do think that there is a desperation, specifically in this, but I would argue in some of his other male char- characters. I went to see um, American Buffalo when I was in New York last year with uh, Lawrence Fishburne and Sam Rockwell, which was yeah. incredible. Uh, um, and there is this kind of, and again, my 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 knowledge of Mamet is relatively limited, so I don't I can't speak to all of his plays. But I do think that at least in those two plays, there is this idea of men just holding on for dear life. There's this desperation of that it's slipping away from them, that it's being taken away from them, that there's something, uh, and, and they're just like clawing their way through day to day. And watching Glengarry Glen Ross this time, American Buffalo, and in Glengarry. It is literally crawling to get to cash. Yes. In American yes. Buffalo, it's about the, the coin, isn't it? Yep. yep. And in this, it's about literally trying to get to the top of the money board. Get the leads. Couldn't get, like, a, you know, a, a more broad, blunt yeah. MacGuffin. <laughs> it's it is it is fascinating to watch this film this time, and just the desperation is palpable every single character you're just like they are just trying to get through the fucking day and and that is just kind of exhausting it's brilliant but by the end of it you're just like no one wins like it's it's just it's just a it's brutal and i i noticed for the first time that yeah sure whoever's top of the board gets a cadillac eldorado and whoever's second gets a set of steak knives but then what they're still sitting in that office. They're still getting pretty shitty leads by comparison. And they have nothing else to show for it other than they didn't die. 
Well, that's part of the, the, the Roma Shelley dynamic I find fascinating because there's almost an acknowledgement on the Roma character that that's his future, right? That he's looking at what it's going to be 20 years down the road, 30 years down the road. Um, and, you know, at the end, there's that fucking brutal knife twist after Shelly fucks up everything and Roma's like we should get into business together and it's like if he'd only fucking asked him like 20 minutes earlier you know what I mean but but it is just that sort of yin and yang that exists and I think that I don't know watching it this time I was just like these poor fucking people, man. Like you, you said it best, Tom. Like what? The, Roma's not gonna be on top forever. Maybe he gets the Cadillac. Maybe because even that seems to be a question mark by the end of the movie. Uh, and you're just sort of like, what is this? This endless fucking struggle. It's brutal. How can any of them not end up like Dave Moss? Yeah. You know, just angry. <laughs> I read some really- Harris, man. Ugh. So I read something about um. Alan Arkin, mm-hmm. who uh, turned down the part several mm-hmm. times, yep. because he said he's he's the one who's the chump, and yep. he doesn't really do a great deal, and yep. they're all unlikable, but he's just a bit pathetic. And they kept saying, thank God they kept going back to him. And in the end, he said yes, because he invented a backstory <laughs> for Aaron. And it was that he used to be a teacher... And the high school that he worked in got shut down and there were no other jobs other than this one. And that's what he created for himself. And watching it this week, it was the first time since I'd learned that. And oh my God, it completely opens it up. As a guy who isn't beaten down by the job, he never wanted to come into it in the first place. And oh my God, is he screwed. He's His scenes with Moss... First of all, he's fucking hilarious. There, just he's he's like mimicking what Moss is saying, but like yeah. he can barely get a word in, really. And it's yeah. more just these like kind of yes. he's fucking hilarious. It's so good. Now, now you mentioned earlier how didn't Jack Lemon get nominated? He should have. He should have won. He'd give him everything for having barely any dialogue other than parroting Ed Harris. And then a, an outburst at the end. It's just, I, I, I don't know how he does it. He's amazing. It, it is, I mean, Lemon in this movie, and I would argue that it's probably the last performance of his that's a renowned performance. I mean, he's in a bunch of things. And, and listen, him and Matthau have some fun, grumpier old men shit that they do for a little while near the end of their careers, which is all cute and fine. But like, this is a substantive performance. You know what I mean? Like, this is the type of thing where Lemon's face at the end when Williamson says, I don't like you. And his eyes are just brimming with tears. And he just oh. says, but my daughter... And he's just, oh, fuck you. <laughs> and you're just like, uh, it, it's, I mean, Jack Lemon is doing so much in this movie. The range of seeing the, the quite frankly, the arrogance that he has at the end when he thinks he has this big sale and how it's, you know, put all this kind of, you know, um, it's soon, confidence. Brutal. Before, when uh, as soon as Baldwin leaves and he gets straight on the phone with this brilliant little phone shoulder 
rest thing and goes straight into his patter, which is so far removed from Ricky Roman. Yes. Ricky Roman's is all the slick and pow, pow, pow. Whereas his is from a completely different era. And that's what's remarkable is, yeah, he probably was a brilliant salesman 30 years ago and probably could have, you know, gone, traveled around America with a vacuum cleaner in his boot and sold a shitload by his smooth talking. But now it's just, it's old hat and it's sad and it's, it's devastates me. It is Um, devastating. But Tom, I know like so many actors who totally revere Jack Lemmon. I think Jack Lemmon's a great actor. You know, I'm not, I'm not besmirching that, but like, there's something about him that really seems to speak to actors. And I'm wondering if you have a sense of like what that is that I, as a writer and no non-actor am not seeing. (laughs) (laughs) I think simply there are some lines that he delivers that you, you hear it and, you know it's Jack Lemon. He just has a way with dialogue that is so unique to him. Because you could give a script to 100 different people and you could have 100 different readings. You probably won't. You'd probably get about four readings. You get 97 people doing it one way and then three or four magic ones giving something completely different. And he's one of the magic ones. Just his delivery is so perfect and his timing is so perfect but none of it is considered which is why you can tell when Shelley is doing his delivery he Jack Lemon doesn't need to do a huge switch because he's not performing quote as uh, Shelley so then he doesn't need to perform as Shelley having Shelley perform as the salesman Instead, it just comes so easily to him that just a tiny little switch, he doesn't need to go into ye olde salesman stuff. Yeah. And he can he can turn that corner so easily. He can then turn the corner into the, like Phil said, the arrogance of the win. He can turn the corner into the going for the sit with the most 1992 American-looking actor they could find. Bruce Altman, yeah. And, and the, yeah, and then turn the corner again for the desperation he can spin on we call it spinning on a sixpence where you just do a complete 180 and it's completely natural and fuck he's so good in everything everything you know it's it's funny you say that because at the end of the film when when link shows back up and roma pulls shelly into a whole fucking bit to to you know, basically um, fuck over Link, for lack of a better way of putting it. And the way that Shelley is in that scene where he's just, he's deferring to Roma. He's letting Roma kind of, you know, give him the breadcrumbs of what he needs him to do (laughs) under the circumstances. But he's so quick. He's so right in it. He understands how to play that and yet still feels a little bit out of his element, right? Like he still feels like, he's aged out of this That's bit. what's so brilliant, is especially yeah. when they start doing the game yeah. and Roma would throw a little question at him. Oh, um, oh, uh, yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah, what was... That's quite as quick. Yes. Oh. But, but at the same time, the, the sort of adulation that Roma gives him after after sort of Price leaves a little bit and says like, you know, you, you just, you were, you were right there with me. You knew what to do. 
And what I love is that the height of praise, the mm. single word, because he says, oh, well, that was like the old days you're doing that. That was admirable. <laughs> yes. And the arrogance of the man that the best praise he can give is, I even me, <laughs> I admire you for that, is just inspired. It's so fucked up. It's so I... fucked up. I have this so what I watched this with my wife and I sort of had this 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 sense this theory that a lot of the best performances are already parodies of themselves like sure. you look at at Gil on the Simpsons who's obviously just this character and you're like oh you don't really have to do anything to make this a parody. Um, before we recorded, we were talking about Tar, and Lydia Tar is already a parody of herself. You don't have to do anything. <laughs> and like, I think that's such a brilliant thing that the best actors can do, where you're watching a performance and it's already the funniest version of itself, but it's like straight down the middle. Yeah, I totally agree. The, 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 the Gill character on The Simpsons, which is quite frank, is obviously just this. Um, it also should be said, a testament to the performance and the writing and what have you, is that this performance of Shelley Levine still breaks my fucking heart. Like, yeah. despite the fact that it might be a parody unto itself, you can't. I mean, that's it. When he walks into that man's house, immediately takes off his coat and his hat. And I was just like, no, 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 no. <laughs> just stop, please stop. Like, and, and hearing this, this, it's brutal. Trying to get rid of him. Oh, God. And the picking up the fishing rod. Oh, oh, God. It is is a truly just, uh, it is a car crash in slow motion performance that you're just watching this man. He's so doomed. He's the first person you see in the film. The first thing you hear is him talking to his daughter, who's clearly sick. And, you know, he's, he's in over his head and he doesn't know how to help her. So you're immediately like, this guy's fucked. The brilliance of adding the conversations about the yes. daughter yes. is you can see what it's not desperate. It's not cash for cash's sake. No. It's not like the Alec Baldwin. Mm-hmm. I've see this watch. This costs more than your car. Yeah. And yeah. I drove in a, what's it? And you, what do you $80, drive? $1,000 BMW. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Driving a Hendo. Um, it's like he needs money or. His daughter, if his daughter needs 24 hour care, he needs money or his daughter's going to die. And that's part of what makes you think it's a satire of America. Oh, absolutely. The, the the scene in the car with Williamson when he's trying to, you know, they're, they're quote unquote working out some sort of a scam that they're going to do. And he doesn't have a hundred dollars. Like he doesn't have $50. He can't even buy a single lead from Williamson. Right. Like he's that, that fucked. It's just, it's, it's yeah. Oh, oh God. And after all of that scrabbling around and he's got $30 to his name, and he, it's not enough to buy a single lead. Yeah. And then as he's being chucked out into the pissing rain, the final line of the scene is just a mumbled, I left my wallet in my room. Yeah, He can't even bring himself to admit that he doesn't have anything. Because we know that's a lie. We know that's a lie. Yep, yep, yep. It's, oh, it's heartbreaking. So- I, I think that, first of all, you said something about the rain, which I love. So uh, the, the play originally takes place in the winter, if I'm not mistaken. Mm-hmm. And oh, yeah. and they weren't going to shoot it in the winter because it was too expensive. So what they did was instead they did the the rain towers. 
to get the rain. And that was the most expensive part of making the movie was the, <laughs> was the rain towers. Um, but it's so effective because it there is something... I don't know if pathetic's the right word, but depressing perhaps about rain as opposed to snow. Like there's just something about Especially when you've got one of those little summer fishing hats oh, that Jerry fuck me. has. And, yeah, it, it's just and oh. everyone just looks pathetic when they're drenched after being in a rainstorm. Like it's just it there, there's nothing good also, about it. It's it's brilliant having the rain for the lighting, the cinematography yeah. of having the light and the rain shows it because it's really, really, it's a brilliant choice. And it's one that normally, if you told me about it, I'd say, oh, for fuck's sake. But watching it, it's so perfect. that All of the lighting outside of the office is red, white, and blue. Mm-hmm. I love that. And you can't escape it when there's rain because it's bouncing off the rain. Yeah. So the first, when it's them in, um, uh, in the phone booths talking yes. on the phone, yes. yeah. it's really stark. It's like... You may as well have had the pattern. Uh, you may as well have had the American flag just on their faces. Yeah. Huge red, huge white, huge <laughs> yeah. blue, and nothing else. Yeah, it's. I mean, it's blunt, but I I liked it. It works. It, I also I want to talk for a second about the leads because I think the leads are first of all they're obviously a big plot point. They move the whole thing, but they're also just the, the metaphor of these men believing that if they were just given the new good leads, everything will be fine. We'll all be just absolutely rich. Just give me the new leads. And when you think about the fact that a lead is merely a person that might maybe have interest in buying real estate, like it's, it's not a foregone conclusion. It doesn't mean fucking anything. This guy is more maybe than this guy is maybe. (laughs) Yes. But it's like, that's it. Yeah, you're, you're you're living on a fucking razor's edge. I just awful. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I, I so there's a bunch of stuff in terms would of them. They be yeah. better? Would they be better? That's no. the question. Would any of them be better off if there was a? Because the leads that they're getting are all people from literally from years ago who sat down and said no years ago, but go back and try again. Yeah, we don't know what their Glengarry leads are. Actually, they're probably exactly the same. (laughs) I I refuse to believe they're that helpful. Emily, what were you saying? (laughs) I I think like, I mean, I think that maybe there's, there's a sense that those people have more money to waste. Like there's a sense that they're, you know, like, but uh, so much of this movie being tied up and trying to get like poor fucks to buy worthless land (laughs) is like, I don't know. There's some, there's something about the fact that this is a stage adaptation that remains rather stagey that I think leave some of this to metaphor in a way that um i don't want to say i don't like i think it works like but i do think it is like uh um it's what keeps me from truly loving the movie in the way that i think a lot of people do i you know so i'm a, i'm an old hand so uh, yeah. i'm not for it and and stuff like the the there's no subtlety there's subtlety in some of the performance but outside of that there's no subtlety like the red white and blue yeah right uh, lighting like when he goes to when Shelley goes to the sit with the as I said the single most American looking man in the world with his early 90s American hair his his roll neck his blue roll neck and China and tucked into his slacks the house is so perfectly American and then he sits down and he's surrounded by kids toys 
And that's a really, really unsubtle way of showing this man is not giving you any money. There are kids around. You've even picked up a kid's toy and gone, he's not giving you any money. And it's so clear to everyone in the audience, which makes it even more devastating that the, 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 the characters can't see it with any well, there, it's there's again it, it sort of comes back to this it, which is even more depressing there's a naivete and a delusional kind of component to all of these characters right like even just the scenes with Ed Harris and Alan Arkin where he's talking Moss has just convinced himself that Jerry Graff is going to be his savior and he's going to you know Jerry Graff's got it all figured out and he's like well because he's got nurses on the hook and then Arkin's like really I heard that shit went cold he's like no 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 he's doing really well and you're like you don't believe that like get a, get a steady pay yeah but that's but logic, it's like it's uh... that's the logic of it and also that scene another really really um unsubtle touch is the bar is basically the edward hopper painting yes sure, sure, sure. and they they barely hide it yeah this is america this is america this is america everywhere you turn yeah but but i would also say that Again, there's is there anything more American than the American dream? The the, the continual sort of perpetual idea that you're going to make it and that there's a windfall of cash right around the corner and and you'll do it on the back of some poor schmuck. Like that, I mean, that is that is literally I mean, I, not to speak too broadly about America, but it does feel like capitalistic wise or capitalism wise, it's it's all kind of based on those notions of I deserve this. Why have I not been given my fucking shot? Why don't I have my money? Um, and this movie, I mean, we talked about this a little bit, Emily. I think it was, I don't remember which movie it was. Oh, it was a uh, few good men. The steak knives. Uh, steak knives were apparently a thing. Uh, some sort of. You got it. I, I have a really nice set of steak knives, you know, like if I won those as a prize and like got, you know, uh, that would be fine. I'd be happy with that. That's a good prize. Really good set of steak knives. Yeah, I I think, um, I don't know. Like, I think this is, I was talking with my sister about um, how what seems really impressive to people now is just shit you could buy in Sky Mall. And I feel like steak knives are like the Sky Mall. Of, I don't know. There's There's some connection in my brain of like, you see steak knives in Sky Mall. You're like, shit, I should buy those. And then you don't because you're on a plane. But if Alec Baldwin's like, Here's some, yeah, perfect. Wonder, but what? also, go ahead. like, there's something kind of, and I don't want to read too much into the steak knives, but I'm going to for a second here, which is that um, the idea of having knives only for steak, the idea that you're having a steak dinner, these are all things that feel very like, you know, hoity-toity, rich people have these things. And I think that that's part of it too, this idea of like, you know, you too are going to have lots of steak. I don't know. They're also like they're also really coded masculine in a way that I think is is in, like having a Cadillac is like this thing of like, oh my god, that's the kind of thing a rich guy has. But specifically, a guy, you know, like if, if you're thinking about a rich woman, she's you know rarely like the Cadillac is not the stereotype you're going with there. No. Um, and it's like like it, eating red meat is such a like masculine thing. Man's that, man thing. You know, yeah. So yeah. There, there's also you know. I think that what this play does brilliantly too, and again, this is this is more of a playwriting thing than a screenwriting thing, but ch- what 
you're choosing to show and what you can get away with not showing what can be off stage what can have happened you know that can be backfilled later and one of the big things is Shelley's scene with the Nyborgs you know we don't see him make that sale we it, we don't see him see, because if we did we might very well not believe yes, that that, that check's going to go through yeah quite yeah quite so you it, having him come in you know, you know, swinging a big dick saying I sold eight units to the Nyborgs is so much more important than actually seeing the scene itself play out. And again, like those choices are what make, I think what make the play pretty brilliant. Um, I, I also just love, there's a moment, the, the camera, there are, there's a fair amount of camera movement in this movie most of it's pretty subtle but like you do have some nice camera moves the the cuts are very much on the rhythm of the speech which also keeps it moving especially with the moss and and uh, uh the alan arkin ed harris stuff like that stuff is just like cut 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 cut, cut. um but there's that moment when ricky roma sits down and listens to shelly tell the nyborg story it's it's right after ed harris loses his shit <laughs> It just pulls back slowly. The first time that you get that pulling back slowly. It's just, it really lets you sit in that, that tableau in that moment of Ricky, letting him have his fucking moment to, to tell the story. And also you, this amazing story that wows the young hero who's top of the board. And it's like the glory days. And this is what we do it for. And gradually the camera shows you where they're fucking sitting. It's just, and it's a, a great war story, but there with the signs that um, the signs on the wall saying salesmen are born, not made. made. And, th- and what was the other one? You can only you only hit what you aim for. <laughs> other one I, you know, I do feel like um, I want to talk about it Harris for a second, because I do think that he's fucking great in this movie. Uh, also a great drinking game is him saying deadbeat. Anytime he says deadbeat, <laughs> just take a drink. You'll be fucking, you'll have alcohol poisoning. But I do think that his blow up, the moment when he blows up at Roma, cause Roma's telling him to shut the fuck up and let Shelly have his moment. Um, he is, I mean, Ed Harris can play anger. Like he's a, he can be a very scary dude. And there's something about his anger in that scene with Roma that I just, I don't know, really, really palpable scary shit. And it's because he does such a brilliant job of the rise and fall of mm-hmm. how he expresses the anger. Yeah. And the explosions always come at things Roma says that could be quite nice. Yes. And it, it also, admittedly, sarcastic, nice. The main explosion at the end that tops it all is when you see he says he's going off, he's going home, and Roma just says, have a nice trip. And that's the explosion. And the the really dangerous line from Ed Harris is the, who's my pal? When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. 
That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas, big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Mm-hmm. Fuck. Fuck. <laughs> uh, yeah. None of them are. None of them are. They can have these relationships like um, uh, Aaron are trying to be friends with anyone, Mm -hmm. Ricky and uh, Shelley. But at the end of the day, they're going to punch each other down. They're going to drown each other to get to the surface. And Harris seems to be the only character who really reacts to that. I would would argue that Moss might also be the only one that's really willing to fuck over anybody. Like the scene he has with Arno, and he's like, don't you re-, like when he's basically says, I need you to rob the, you know, to, to rob the office. And Arno's like, well, why? He's like, because you listened, you fucking heard my, you, you listened to me and now you're, you're in. And obviously he does the same thing to Shelly and, and Shelly actually goes along with it. But now, there's Shelley something about, what was that? You think Shelly, would have needed much persuading. No. <laughs> I mean, Shelly's Shelley's ready to tip, you know, from the jump, right? Like, he's, he's easily the most desperate of everybody. But you just get the sense that Moss... There's a couple things that I wanted to ask you guys about. Um, because it does feel like people are very reactive in this play. So, like, does Williamson fuck over Shelly if Roma doesn't get angry at Williamson for fucking up with Link, right? Like, does Moss do what Moss does without being fucking shellacked by Alec Baldwin earlier in the script? Like, you need all of these basic things to tip and for all of this, ultimately for their masculinity to be threatened by someone, by another man, in order for them to fuck over another man. Do you know what I'm getting at? Somewhere, but they're always being punched from above. Roma right. was quite right to attack Williamson because he right. fucked. And so they're always, everyone is punching yeah. down. Yeah. Really, for better or for better or for worse. Um, like, does Shelly not, the... like, does Shelly not get over his skis and ultimately out himself if he doesn't have the arrogance no, that, that comes with the, with the, with the, with the, um, Nyborgs? He thinks he's he thinks he's safe as houses. He sees Williamson down when right. the last time they had a scene, just the two of them, he was pleading and he just can't resist putting his boot in. And Williamson, ironically, because he's played by the main asshole of the group of actors. Correct. There's so much of it that actually you can kind of dig what he's doing. Mm-hmm. He... He sees how pathetic they are. Yeah, he's clawed his way up. Through. He probably is someone's cousin uh, yes, who, yes, yes. who got the job. And he shouldn't be there. And he doesn't understand how hard the job is. Uh, 
and he just wants to get through the day so he can go and see his kids. There's so much about him that is decent Mm -hmm. until he says, yeah, all right, give me $50 and I'll give you a lead. And even he, even the man who is from the beginning meant to be the good one, because he's he's the the uh, the butt of every joke and every bit of anger from the others is at him. So there's a part of me that thinks maybe the audience is meant to be on his side. He's we're with him until oh no, you're exactly the fucking same. You'll sell leads. You'll break the rules for a bit of cash. Absolutely. I mean, you can even see it in the scene at the end when Williamson has figured out that Shelley is the guy that stole the leads. He's like the one night that I decide to go home and be with my kids, which is like it's like he's rubbing his face in it and being like, I'm a good guy. I went home one night to be with my kids and he uses it as sort of ammunition to fuck him over. Like, it, it's just it's it is fascinating what these guys Also funny, use. given what um, Alec Baldwin says to Ed Harris in the rampage. Yes. Good father, fuck you. Go home and play with your kids. That's a weakness. Yeah, it's gross. It's insane. So, Emily, I got to ask. Thoughts on the toxic masculinity of these characters? (laughs) I call this... uh, uh, This falls into a a broad swath of of movies I call Boys Are Weird movies, where I just, like, I watch a movie and I'm like, why is anybody doing anything they're doing? And I'm like, I guess boys are just weird. That's just how they are. Um, My wife had that with the Northmen. The Northman was like A plus for me, boys are weird cinema. I saw that and I was like, boys are weird, but sometimes they're hot. And I was like, great, <laughs> wonderful. Um, I, I I mean, uh, Al Pacino's in a lot of movies like that. Like Heat is yes. another movie that sort of hits that note. And I feel like, yeah. Such of a woman is going to, you're going to, that's, we're going to be getting into that. That's if, real if boys have, are weird. <laughs> If I have a complaint about this movie, it's not the toxic masculinity and it's not even necessarily like the the mammoth of it all, the performance of it all. It's that I don't I think James Foley simultaneously has like a take that is ridiculously unsubtle, you know, the red, white and blue lighting. And then like his take on the nuances of it is I really like watching these actors and cool. I do, too. But like I feel like there's a thing in the power dynamics that the director doesn't have a perspective on in the way that the writer and the actors do. Um, I think, I don't know. I struggle with the mammoth of it all, not because I think he's a shitbag, but because, uh, I mean, he is, but because I frequently feel like when I watch a mammoth thing, I am taking one thing away from it other than what the playwright intended. I think that's cool. I think the the audience, the reader, the whatever is is the ultimate arbiter of the work we do. But at the same time, I feel like I'm existing in a kind of claustrophobic world that doesn't actually exist where all the screws are being tightened and turned to make some larger point. And I can get to like this movie being like about how diseased capitalism is. But to some degree, and I think a lot of this lies in the direction, it is kind of about, wouldn't it be fucking awesome to screw over guys? Like, and there's um, there's something about that that holds me at arm's length. I don't think it's a problem with, like, the acting, which is superb across the board. I think it is that James Foley, you know, I, he's not the guy I would, I would choose to direct this, I think. And he's fine. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and you can see it in the career that James Foley has had since this film, which is 
fine. I mean, it's 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 nothing, you know, um, to be embarrassed of, but it's also not anything to be all that excited about either. I, he, it is an interesting choice. I do. I mean, listen, I, I there is a part of me that wonders whether we get another version of this in the next 10, 15 years, another filmed version of this with, you know, with the next generation of great actors. I want to see this as one of those fucking live stage shows that mm. people were doing for a while. Like they were going to do a few good men as a live play on NBC. And like, there are, there are language issues. You can't do this on broadcast television, but like, I think an HBO live version Mm -hmm. of this could be quite fun. I I just would want to see them. I don't know. I'd want to see them shake it up in some way yep, because yep. it re- it really betrays its roots as being written in the Reagan era. And it's already betraying those in yeah. 1992. Yeah. And like, I, I'm, I am, I guess, interested in if now that we've seen the sort of aftermath of the conservative policies in across the Western world, really, like if there is an interesting uh, tale to that, I think you kind of have to wait for David Mamet to die to actually do that version. But yeah. Yeah, I I do think there is, you know, it is interesting, you know, Tom, you mentioning the the all female cast version of it or something to that effect. I I do think that this play, um, to to what you're saying, Emily, could stand to be kind of. I'd love to see it through the prism of a 2023 lens. Uh, I would love to see somebody do something with that because I do think that there's a lot of it's just really rich terrain. But the, the play that this most frequently gets compared to is Death of a Salesman for obvious reasons. But like Death of a Salesman is so malleable. You can do so many things with that cast and it becomes immediately a different play. I think one of the sort of weaknesses of David Mamet as a writer is what Tom was referring to earlier, which is like he thinks his words are God. And like that means there's not a lot of room for malleability yeah. in his work in the I way also, there was with August Wilson. I wonder whether that is why Arthur James- Miller, sorry. Arthur Miller. Uh, I wonder if that's why James Foley was the director because he wasn't the most experienced director at the time. And I wonder how much Mamet was there, you know, calling the shots. You also have to wonder whether or not the actors also wanted a director that was not going to push back much. Um, I mean, the the truth of the matter is that, that some, the tactic that was taken clearly by James Foley when it comes to directing this film was get out of the fucking way, point the camera at this incredible cast of people. Um, you can do a flourish here or there with lighting and cameras and what have you. But, you know, even the actors talk about the fact that like most of this was locked off shots. You know what I mean? They just, they do eight page scenes from one angle and then they do the eight page scenes from another angle. And it was not, it was not a particularly, um, you know, uh, filmic environment, really. Um, so the, there's an argument to me for whether or not uh, someone with more visual flourishes, a more direct, a harder sort of directing hand could have done something perhaps more interesting. Than and it's interesting we're doing this in Few Good Men back to back because they are very similar films in a lot of ways. Sure. I think this has a stronger script than A Few Good Men. And I think it has, I think the performances are probably roughly equally good i probably prefer them in this movie i think rob reiner is can't believe i'm saying this a 10 times the director james foley is and that kind of pulls a few good men over the top for me like i just yeah yeah, i there's a there's a lack of directorial point of view outside of the absolute most obvious thing you could say which is america's kind of fucked up right sure i think i I think that's also why uh it wouldn't work now 
Mm. And I'm thinking back to the last time I saw it on stage, which was quite a few years ago. But I think you couldn't have, you you can't add anything. In a way, Mm. Mamet's right. His dialogue is the god of this piece, especially post, um, post, you know, it's a long time ago and I'm aging. It's all post-Occupy and um, post-Trump approach approach to politics. And yeah. Our, our 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 vantage point, our viewpoint of capitalism now is so different to '92. We had barely got rid of yuppies in this country and city boys, and with barely when was when was we ran the yuppies out. We made them live on preserves in the country. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you're not I, wrong. Now we, yeah. you know, now. Like lawyers aren't the baddies anymore. Bankers are the baddies. That's the big shift. Yeah, I, you and know, I, I guys, think that these guys fall in with with the bankers, and so yeah. an audience would never approach this in the same way. This... And that's why having Mamet and his dialogue, this film now and any production of the play is entirely about the dialogue and the characters, and nothing sure. to do with the. Uh, the what was one satire of it this um this is the first time i've watched this movie since the the trump era um i watched it a number of times in the 90s and really liked it i didn't see it in theaters obviously because i didn't see any movies in theaters in the 90s um but like the second film this was not the second film this was not it wasn't aladdin and this weirdly um (laughs) the uh the the thing that like just just that whole guy's doing the dominance thing dominant the dominance politics of this office like this idea that all politics is this thing where one person has to come out over the other which exists on all sides of the political spectrum but is particular particularly predominant on the right like the first this is my first time watching it since trump won and i was like oh god this is like there's a grossness here that is now inescapable but that's also kind of the point so like i'm not i'm not opposed to it i just am like it's a, it's a lot harder watch now than it used to be. It's a lot. It's uh, the way I keep describing it is it's claustrophobic. You are trapped in this movie in ways intentional, like being trapped in that office is intentionally claustrophobic, but also in ways that now like time has made this feel like being stuck inside Donald Trump's Twitter feed. And that is a, a sad place to be. <laughs> Oh, there's no this time around watching the Alec Baldwin speech. I was like, does Trump have it tattooed on his chest? Do you know what I mean? Like, is is that is that it, it really does feel that way? Um, I, I do just uh, quickly want to talk about. I don't I don't know if it's the climax of the play, but Link coming back to the office, trying to unring the bell um, because he's panicked and his wife doesn't want him to go through with the deal with Roma, the deal that got Roma over the top that gets him the fucking Cadillac. Um, I felt for Jonathan Price in this movie in a big way. This guy is like surrounded by fucking snake oil salesmen. Like that scene when he's just desperately trying to get out of the office and make sure that his check hasn't been cashed. And Roma's like fucking gaslighting him on days of the week. Like it's just fucking crazy. But before he get, but the whole of the Roma attempting to get out of it, mm-hmm. it's so nice that. Pacino allows us to see Roma struggle. Sure. Because some people wouldn't. Some actors would have Ricky Roma and they just want to play Mr. Slick throughout all of it. But he's floundering. He's re- And so it's two men, it's two fish 
just flapping against each other, trying to get be the first one to get off the beach back into the ocean. And it's so desperate. It, it is. I mean, I think it's the best part of Pacino's. And the only one victorious in that moment is Shelley the Machine Levine, because finally he's well into the character. He can tap his watch and say, Rick, we got to go. He knows what he's doing. Now, finally. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's 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 a it's a great scene. I love that there's a weird little uh, blooper in it, which is that he takes the gum out of his mouth and he tries to stick it to the bottom of the desk, but in his fervor, it kind of pops out. It's it it's it's great. It's and the and the like when he brushes his hand through his hair, the little fucking like signs that he's giving Shelley. These guys are so fucking pathetic. All of I them. I want to know what it was like. Hmm. What happened at James Link's house? Oh yeah. When. He brought Ricky Roma home in the middle of the night and got his wife to cook them both a meal. <laughs> he sold them land. The, I mean, uh, never mind the the Bruce and Harriet Nyborg. <laughs> it, that's the one I want to see. How? Uh, maybe maybe the most mammity thing about this is this unseen wife character who's like implied to be kind of a ball breaker and like, but like her husband forced her to buy shitty real estate and you're like wow what a bitch where i mean like i buy real estate without telling my wife all the time but we're lesbians it's fine that's expected in a lesbian relationship um but like uh yeah it, there's this implied that's kind of the most mammoth thing here and that kind of like i'm always like well i mean of course your wife is mad at you but it's like sort of implied that like fuck too bad for all ricky roma to, 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 to your point when this when the Ricky Roma link scene, they sit down and it starts to mellow. And Roma at this point sees an opportunity to frame the wife as the villain, obviously, in not wanting to proceed. And that Link has to go through with this deal to reclaim his masculinity and to reclaim power in this relationship. I mean, it's so fucked. It's, and it's the point. I'm not. I'm not sitting here and arguing that they should bring in like fucking Meryl Streep and have her give a big speech about how she's a wronged woman. It's just like, it's just like a worldview that I, as a woman, like feel like sort of like, like my brain is being stomped down into a sewer. And I'm like, thanks, David Mamet. This has been fun. But it's another example of Mamet as we knew him then, and Mamet as we know him now. Oh, yeah. yeah. And actually this borderline incel uh, approach to women. Every single wife is spoken about in terms of how good her cooking is. Yes, yes. And in this, it's you've got to get the power back. You're a man, James Link, and you need to, you need to be the man of the house mm-hmm. and you need to dominate because that's what men do. Mm-hmm. And now, Lynn, knowing Mamet now, it's even uglier. One of my favorite things is that, of course, Sasha Mamet, his daughter, was in Girls, and she claimed that he watched every episode of Girls. I like to imagine David Mamet <laughs> watching Girls and like yeah. what he made of that program. I really hope that's true. I hope it's true too. I so I, I do feel like um, when Williamson steps in it and basically tells Link that his check has been cashed, and Roma sort of has this moment where he's like. Not, not to my knowledge. 
<laughs> and just sort of like tries his best to separate himself from the situation and preserve not even whatever dignity he has, but to try to preserve the relationship with Link. Obviously, it doesn't matter. And Link takes off and is pissed off. But um, there, there is something really interesting about uh, the Roma sort of talking down Williamson and being like, you fucking cunt. <laughs> Like, you fucking idiot. What are you doing? Um, a great line that never open your mouth till you know what the shot is, um, is amazing. Um, it, it, it's it. There's something about Kevin Spacey, who is very good in this film. I have to say he is very good in this movie. Um, he the 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 flip that he does the turn he does within seconds essentially where he's just been talked down by Roma he feels like a piece of shit Shelly is you know jumping on him about it as well and then just the second he hears Shelly say if you're gonna make something up make sure it helps um is also <laughs> like it, it's all very smartly written that everything has a double meaning and everything has something else that's going on in it um but Shelley, man. You know what? If Shelley was smarter, if Shelley was 20 years younger and able to think on his feet, you could get around that so easily. It's it's not the most incriminating thing that has been said that morning. You could easily get around it. Yeah, he's just... But, he, but he's, he's done. He's too old. He's too old. Oh. It's, I also... I need to just say... <laughs> Aaron Arkin screaming Gestapo tactics is <laughs> the fucking is one of my favorite things that he does in this movie. Gestapo tactics. He's just he's just pointing and screaming at a door. <laughs> it's so much. Oh. Um, but yeah, I mean, ultimately, it's it, it's it's obviously a really heartbreaking ending. There's also something about um. Roma, after Shelley is pulled into the office with the cops, I think he senses what's happened because then George asks him, did they catch the guy? And he's like, I don't know. And then he says, oh, I don't know. Like, he's piecing together, I think, that Shelley did it. There's one moment that in the hundreds of times that I've seen this film, I only clocked this time. And fuck, I wish I could remember what it is. It's something that Shelley says and Roma gives him a look and it looks like that's the moment that he realises. And well, it's I mean, he, he says, do you want to meet me at the Chinese food restaurant? He's trying, you know, that's when he obviously tells him that he wants to work with him and the partnership and this, that and whatever. And Shelley's on the verge of tears sitting at his desk, essentially. Uh you get and he and he's like, yeah, no, I think I got to stay around here for a little bit. There's there is something very kind of, you know, Shelley knows. There's one look, there's one shot, and Pacino just stares at him and clearly realizes. And if that's the case, he leaves Shelley for either of two reasons: either because I'm not going down on this sinking ship, or equally tragic. I believe in Shelley the Machine Levine and he can talk his way out of this. Well, there's that moment when the detectives like get in the office and Roma's like, hey, you can't talk to Shelley the Machine <laughs> Levine like that. <laughs> and it's just, yeah, it, it's... it's, it's, it's yes. We, 
we've been talking about, you know, could mm-hmm. you do this with all women? Could you do mm-hmm. this with what I think the take on this that could mm-hmm. be relevant is, mm-hmm. is, is you get all queer men sure. and you have a queer male director. Uh-huh. You just do the script as written, but you sort, there is a homoeroticism to this yeah, that is sure. so deeply suppressed. And if you could bring that like two levels up it's still it's still repressed it's still not in the text but if you bring it up into the subtext a little bit more i i think yeah i don't know i think i think i'm gonna write some shelly levine ricky roma fanfic i'm just gonna write about yeah um so i do i want to rate this real quick because tom i do have a question um about next week's movie that i'm curious as to your thoughts on but um when i saw this in 92 uh you know i watched it a lot surprisingly as a kid um, so I, I liked it quite a bit. <laughs> it's explained so much. Well, but really though? Okay. When did you first um, see it? I'm sorry? When did you first see it? Oh, definitely on video. This was not a movie I saw in the theater for sure. No. Um, um, yeah, I mean, I was 12. My guess is I probably saw it when I was about 13 or 14 on video cassette or something wow. like that. I saw it pretty young. Wow. Um, and I, and I do remember, um, I just remember people talking about I was I was I still am a big Oscar guy and Pacino getting a nomination for this probably got me to watch it. Um, Maybe even around the time of Sent a Woman, which I might have saw Sent a Woman in the theater. I think I did with my parents. Oh, my God. Um, But I but um, yeah, my mom was my mom is and was a big Al Pacino fan. So my guess is that I probably saw this relatively early. But um and then watching it again the other day, you know, it, it it did, it it really did resonate with me. I own it on on um, on four K, and I was watching it again, and and it, it is, it's a really rich script filled with great performances. I agree with everything you're saying, Emily. That it does feel small and claustrophobic, and I do wish that that um, you know that James Foley was perhaps a little bit more of a dynamic filmmaker. Um, so, you know, I'm not, I'm not going up much, but I, if I was at an 82 and 92, I'm probably at like an 87 or an 88 now. Like, I think that that's probably where I land. I still love it. I think it's a great movie. I just don't know that it's in the nineties for me, but only because, um, you know, Mammoth and, and fucking Spacey do make it a little, a little icky, unfortunately at times, but, uh, what about you, Tom? Where are you on this? When did you see this for the first time? Do you remember? Um, it was, I must have been about 18, 17, 18, something like that. Sure. sure. And it was uh, the time when I seriously decided that I would be an actor. And okay. my, the guy who then became my flatmate, did he show it to me when we were living together? If so, then I was about 18. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, before I was about 17. And he was an American friend of mine, and he just showed me all of the American films from the 70s through to the 90s that I should know about. And we just watched them on repeat. Uh-huh. So he introduced me to that and uh, The Big Lebowski, another one of my favourite films, Parallax View, um, in fact, that trilogy. And these are films that we just watched constantly. And this one in particular. And it became, the dialogue became our dialogue. There are so many quotable moments in it. And often quotable films, 
quotable because they can they can then seem a bit hokey afterwards. But this is quotable because almost every line is just so brilliantly constructed. It's a play that or, or a film. I would love to play any of those characters, any of them. They're all just gold. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it was in the 90s, I'd say, let's go low 90s then, and it's still around the low 90s now. I sense. love it. it. It'll still be in my, if not in my 10, in my 50. I think it's in my top 10 favorite films. I love it. It's a great movie. Performances, script, amazing. And I do agree about um, sometimes you'd like, another director, but actually I'm okay with him taking a bit of a backseat. Uh, backseat. Yeah. And just like, when you've got that cast, I think it's the best ensemble cast. One of the best ever. I, yeah. I, 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 I don't even mean that I wanted Foley necessarily to be some sort of a heavy handed director. I just, it does feel a little bit anonymously directed, whereas you do wish yes, that there was, right. you know what I mean? But yeah, no, I'd agree you, with Emily. I, I just thought Mike Nichols would have been a great sure, fit sure, for this. Sure. Like, yeah. um, I have, before I rate you this, I have about every film. Every yeah. film. <laughs> yeah, sure. Before I rate this, I have an important question for you two, which is, would you rather live in a universe where everybody talks like an Aaron Sorkin character or everybody talks like a David Mamet character? By which I mean, would you rather be the guy who stocks the vending machines at this office or at like the Bartlett White House? And you just have to like, people will just come up to you and monologue at the drop of a hat and you're like, I got to just get out of here. (laughs) Well, I think there's a pretty significant difference, which is one of these two writers sees the world as a positive place, a place of potential. The other is that the world is a cesspool and everyone's just uh, looking to climb over each other's bodies. I'm going to pick Sorkin, if for no other reason than because I need hope in my life. But um, what about you, Tom? Yeah, absolutely. I I think I'd I'd crumple in this world. (laughs) In this world of mammoth men. There's no room for me. <laughs> I think I, I think I'm going to go Mammoth, even though then I have to live in a weird power struggle universe. Just because I think I think he's writes better one liners, and also you don't get stuck with a monologue every other scene. So, like you know, I feel like I could I could uh, be in the middle of that. Um, well, can I ask I, you a question, Emily? Yeah. Since you posited one to us, yeah. who do you think writes better women, Aaron Sorkin or David Mamet? <laughs> uh push no um i i think uh i i honestly think it's probably mammoth because he sees women as amoral as everybody else and like you know he kind of writes them as uh similar characters which is fine i but yeah i think i don't know um i i i probably yeah I, I think I'm going to go mammoth. Oh, God. Right, fair enough, what fair a enough. depressing thing to think about. <laughs> Sorry, I didn't mean to. Um, uh, <laughs> What's I got, your rating? I, I got to give this on the 90s queer phobia scale. I think it's like a three. Like there's some <laughs> some 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 slurs, but also like I feel like everybody in this movie is kissing when the camera's off. Um, there's just that <laughs> element. When I saw this in the 90s, I don't want to say I was probably 16, 17. So I saw it, saw it in the later 90s. Um, yeah. I probably was like 80. You know, I liked it. I didn't I didn't love it. Um, sure. And now that I'm seeing it now, I actually came in like kind of middling on this. But you all have talked me up a little bit. 
I'm going to go like 77, 78. I think okay. it's good. I like to, I'm leaving myself room to go higher, sure. which I, I may regret later. <laughs> I don't know. Just, there's leaving. so many movies that you haven't seen from 92. I, yeah. Right? You know, what if, what if it turns out that Chaplin is like a secret masterpiece or, or toys? You might love toys. <laughs> toys love feels toys. Who knows? Toys is a chaos. That's like, that's my chaos Emily pick is that, that you're going to oh, love toys. Oh, I buy my. <laughs> that's what I'm saying. Robin Williams. Robin Williams yeah. in a toy factory. Yep. Emily, you're going to love it. <laughs> I, I mean, it, you might. It's, yeah. it's Tori Amos makes, does the music. It's insane. Um, oh, fucking hell, this is going to be so good. <laughs> you're going to love toys. But um, what I wanted... Fun? Yes. Next week, I wanted to ask you, we're, we're, we are uh, <laughs> we're doing Under Siege. The, uh, the seven, uh, Steven Seagal, uh, Tommy Lee Jones joint. Um, yeah. And my question to you is, and I'm, I genuinely don't know the answer to this. What are your feelings about Tommy Lee Jones? Are you, are you a fan? Oh. Are you not a fan? Do you, you have favorite ask, performances what, what are my of his? feelings about Erica Elenak coming out? No. <laughs> I was not going to go there. Uh, Tommy Lee Jones. I, yeah. I think he's terrific, isn't he? Isn't yeah, it? no, this is, I, that wasn't a leading question. I was just curious as to like, because Tommy Lee Jones has a really broad spectrum of movies, right? There are there are people that are like, that will ride hard for a Men in Black, which is understandable. But then like, he also does JFK. Like the guy actually really can almost do anything. And I'm just curious as to where you fall on on sort of the Tommy Lee Jones spectrum. Um, His Two-Face was a work of art. <laughs> sure. Who could forget his Two-Face? <laughs> <laughs> An unforgettable <laughs> performance. He, um, hmm. I mean, he, so you're right. He's got you, you think of him, and when you first mention his name, all you think is kind of gruff, Texan, mm-hmm. tough guy. Yep. But then he can do the, the, the funny stuff of Men in Black, and he can make a fool out of himself in the Batman film. In, I mean, make a fool out of himself in a positive way. Yes, totally. Um, he does have, the more you think about it, he does have a very surprising range. He does. And I wonder why we don't think of him as an actor with a big range. Well, I think that, you know, what's interesting, and we talk about this a little bit on the episode um, for Under Siege, but he that really was the big movie for him. Like, it really opened a lot of doors for him. Now, admittedly, JFK is the year previous, but the year after Under Siege is the year that he does The Fugitive and he wins uh, Best Supporting Actor, directed by the same director of Under Siege. And it feels like... And then he gets in bed with Schumacher, does The Client, does Batman Forever. Um, and, And at a certain point, it does feel like, not that he's taking the paycheck, but that Hollywood is like... He's a movie star. People like to go and see Tommy Lee Jones in movies. Um, but, you know, then you, you, you know, near the end of his, I don't want to say end of his career, he hasn't really acted much over the last few years, but he's great in Lincoln. He's great he's in, uh, in No Country for Old Men. Like, the guy's fucking great. <laughs> I, think, I think that we write him off because he has an accent and he doesn't it's really true. alter it. I think, I literally think that within America, we have certain built-in assumptions about what sorts of accents are like, tony and um he doesn't have one of them and like i you know i do agree he's one of our finest actors and yet i would not file him as such and like that's that's a failure on my part no he he is he is a great actor i think he's i mean not to but you know he's been notoriously difficult on set which doesn't surprise me uh he seems like a guy who's probably gonna want it to go a certain way um but uh but again like 
you know, Under Siege is a weird movie. We have uh, Ben Hosley uh, from Blink Check who's come on uh, to talk with us about Under Siege next week. But, um, you know, Steven Seagal is probably the weakest link in Under Siege. Oh. <laughs> I know, shocking as that might be. <laughs> um but um yeah it, it was it's a great episode but um emily do you have a timer that you want to set by any chance <laughs> the problem with this is oh no so the the emily's babylon minute i think is a great bit but we keep having guests on who haven't seen the film like i'll be at the start i'll be like hey have you seen babylon and they're like it's three hours long what are you talking about but yes i'm setting a timer because i feel like our yeah. next, the next, the next uh, episode that we're recording is a friend of yours. Yes, and I, I have a feeling she's seen Babylon, but what? I could be wrong. <laughs> what if she hasn't? If she hasn't, <laughs> this Babylon minute bit is great. But please right. go. So I obviously love the film Babylon. So it's time for Emily's Babylon minute now out on VOD. Uh, we're recording these all out of order. So the origins of all our bits are like buried deep in the run. Um, but yes, I'm setting a timer. I'm starting it. So I wasn't a huge fan of the actual end of the film Babylon, which concludes with, let's just say a montage. I don't want to spoil it too badly, but I, having thought about it more, I have gotten stuck on the idea of it in a way that is really intriguing to me. And having thought about it more, I think that Babylon is ending in the only way it can end, which is in an overt gigantic expression of the ways in which we are compelled emotionally by the medium of cinema. Uh, originally, the plan evidently was to end it just on a close-up of this guy's face watching a movie, and like that would not have had the same punch as like sort of this idea that, as David Sims best expressed on uh, on on Letterbox, uh, yes, the movies have destroyed everything, but also they gave us Avatar, and like as a as an Avatar head as well, like I just I feel as though. There's the oh, no other way this film could end than to just say the cinema and then like vomit a whole bunch of movies over you. And anyway, that's been Emily's Babylon Minute. So I, I'm going <laughs> to just respond very quickly because I do think you're making an interesting point. And, and Tom, I'm curious as to your thoughts on this as well. I know you're not on social media, thankfully, for your own mental health. It's the smart play. I'm not suggesting otherwise. Um, the thing about Babylon for me is that the movie is almost beside the point now because <laughs> what i'm what i'm being inundated with on social media is i feel like i'm being gaslit by like hundreds of people telling me how brilliant babylon is <laughs> that it has me questioning myself and my own taste and that feels like it encapsulates the entire fucking film universe right now which is you you have a take on something and then literally everyone yells at you and tries to convince you that your take is wrong phil and you just people, ran out of time you ran out of your, your I, 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 I know i'm at my 30 keep seconds going, but i just i want to just i just want to just finish this thought and just to say that i do think that you have successfully got me to question my own thoughts about this movie and all it took and, was yelling at you and making a it's always sunny in philadelphia graphic that says phil becomes babylon pilled but i do <laughs> i do think that there is something worth reevaluating and i will reevaluate it at some point but tom my question that i was going to ask oh, you be is strong, phil. be strong be strong no, no. <laughs> but my like question to, <laughs> my question to you is more about and like i said you're not on social media so you don't have this in your life as much but it sounds a bit like he's the new uh damien chazelle is the new mm. Zack snyder 
and uh, it will be online people shouting to get. God, can you imagine Damien Chazelle hearing us comparing him to Zack Snyder? <laughs> I don't know how he would feel about it. But this is my question more to you, Tom, is that like, do you feel over the last, let's just say 10 years or so, that like opinions in film or pop culture, what have you, that you either have to like dig in your fucking heels and be like this, I, I am planting my fucking flag here, like fuck off and go away. Or do you feel inundated with other people's opinions? I don't know. I don't know your, your social circles I, necessarily, I, but I, it's my, my a big problem with social media is I don't want anyone's other opinions. I don't, I don't, care. Yeah. I don't yeah. care. Yeah. I, I will. There are people who I will listen to and uh, who either will express an opinion that they know will uh, resonate with me mm-hmm. or people who can give me some interesting facts about something. I don't fucking care about opinions. You know, the big turning point for me mm-hmm. was a few mm-hmm. years ago, watching the news on the BBC. Mm-hmm. And at the end of one of the, the news story, they said, uh, and text us in, oh, tweet us in your, th- your thoughts on this piece at hashtag BBC News. Sure. No, fuck you. It's the news. It's about fact. It's not about opinion. It's true. And I don't don't care. That's you're you're absolutely. That's the right answer. We're learning about film. I mean, you know, we don't have the the likes of Pauline Kael anymore. But there are still a handful of people who, for film and for theatre, I will be interested in what they have to say because they have a huge encyclopedic knowledge. Phil, I would always listen to your opinion on it uh, and then just kind of tone down how generous it is. You're far too nice. I'm far too nice, yeah. yeah. But you you have such a great um, uh, knowledge of cinema, and so it's valuable. The the people shouting, you should like Babylon on Twitter, (laughs) with a present company accepted, like... Yeah. Go and shout in a bucket and do us all a favor. <laughs> I think I, I think as as someone who until very recently was doing this professionally, it has gotten so much harder to cut through the noise. You kind of have to turn your love of something into a bit. Like I I I think the Fablemans, which I re-saw yesterday, uh, is a just a brilliant, wonderful film. And but like shouting about how I love the Fablemans just is like it's very weird. It's this weird thing of like it almost has to be a movie that a lot of people have written off or a movie that a lot of people love. Like um, I think everything everywhere all at once is this weird case study where everybody's yelling at each other about that movie. And then you watch the movie and you're like, this is good. Yeah, <laughs> and no, like I, that, I, yeah, it, it is this weird thing of like having to perform your opinion all the time. My favorite person to discuss film with hands down is my personal trainer because he sees everything. He has interesting takes, but he's not online. So he'll just be like about the movie Willow. He was like, this was really ahead of its time for 1988. I think people just didn't appreciate it. And I'm like, maybe that's true. I don't know. <laughs> but that's yeah. you know, yeah. that's someone with interesting takes yeah. because, you know, you know, criticism is hard. It's hard to be a critic. Yeah. Um, uh, Emily knows, believe me. Yeah. Um, I, I think that it's, I think we live in a very interesting, weird time. Um, the perfect time for Babylon to exist, quite frankly. Um, and I, 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 listen, I cherish Emily's Babylon minute. 
Uh, it is, it's one of my favorite parts of, of, of this podcast thus far. So, but all of this being said, Tom, thank you so much for coming on and talking about this movie with us. What a treat. Uh, do you have anything you want to plug? Do you have anything you're you're up to that you want to? Do you have a not? Do you want to have a non-existent social media account you want to point to? I'm recently unemployed, so thank you for bringing it up. <laughs> it's me too, honestly. Hey. It's true. I I will say though uh, that I cannot wait to talk about the the litany of other films that you've uh, that you've chosen to talk about on what this podcast weird, with us. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's it is fascinating um but i mean as always a pleasure tom can't wait to talk with you again oh, likewise whenever i love it uh, all right we'll talk to you soon great bye guys Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.